just to settle on basically my first point. So that's why we went only to the end of chapter 2, two weeks ago. And so this week, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up and go from the beginning of chapter 3 to verse 5. All right. And so um, I think Renee is going to come and read that for us. As she comes, I just want to remind us the same thing I said a couple weeks ago. I want to remind us what we saw about God's word in verse 13 of chapter 2. This is Paul talking. Verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is. See that phrase? As what it really is, the word of the word of God. That's what it really is. That's what we're reading here, which is at work in you believers. So let me just pray for us that that would be the case. Father, I ask that we would receive this as your word, and I pray that it would be at work in us, that it wouldn't just be something that we hear, wouldn't just be something that we learn, but it would be something that works inside of us. We need you to do that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. First Thessalonians 2, 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so as we start, what we're going to do is we're going to get kind of a running start into chapter 3. And so to do that, I'm just going to recap a little bit of where we were two weeks ago. So we had the picnic last week, so just so we can remember kind of where we landed in 1 Thessalonians. Um, and I hope it's not hard to remember, actually, in all seriousness. I really, um, my prayer for us is that really this has been the last two weeks of 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and on working inside of our hearts. The Spirit reminding, teaching, encouraging us, prompting us. And so I feel like it was no accident that we had, that God encouraged the stop at the end of the beginning of chapter 3, and then that we had two weeks in, success, in succession for this uh, passage to really work on us, for God to work in us. And so sort of one of the big takeaways that we had were disciples are our crown of boasting, our glory, and our joy. So that was a little bit of a, a, little bit of a strange thing, but if you you pull it apart, it actually makes a lot of sense that disciples are our glory and our joy, and in fact, what we boast in, because disciples bring glory and joy and boasting before God. It's why Jesus died, for him to get glory from saving people, disciples. Jesus building his church produces joy 
joy in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and also joy in us. And so a right understanding for us when we think of the church, when we're talking to other believers, when we're viewing our mission, is that they, the church, other disciples, are our joy and our glory and our boasting. And as a way for us to review, apply a little bit, I just kind of compiled a short list of some ways that if we really believe this, if I really believe this, here's some things that I think would be true about the church. Here's some things I think would be true if we really believe that disciples are our crown of boasting, our glory, and our joy. I think if that's true, then I think we wouldn't speak ill of others. I think we wouldn't slander. I think we wouldn't gossip. I think we wouldn't fight and argue with one another either. I think we might disagree. I think we would see some things differently. I think we could discuss that. But I don't think that we would have hatred or anger or dissension among us because we're unified in Jesus. We are each other's glory and joy and crown of boasting. I think that we would rejoice at any fruit we see in other believers. In fact, I think we would go so far as to look for, specifically in other believers' lives, ways that they are acting like Jesus. And then we would proclaim that. We would say, wow, I saw you do this the other day, and when you did that, that reminded me of our Savior Jesus. Great job. That's the Spirit working inside of you. I think that we would be on the lookout constantly. We come together like this in a gathering that we would leave and just have a list of encouragements that we could dole out to people that we see, wow, this is the body of Jesus acting like the body of Jesus. This is Jesus working in the hearts of people and changing them from sinful, selfish, inward-facing people to outward, Jesus-loving people. Not perfect, for sure, with flaws, with sin, hurting each other from time to time. But I think we would be the first to go and reconcile, the first to lay down our lives to say we're sorry, to make sure that we bring unity even when there's feels like there's a temptation to be disunited with each other. I think we would not be critical or cynical or negative with the church, both the local church and the global church. I think boasting other disciples means that we're looking out for, we are on the lookout, we are leaning forward to see what is Jesus doing in this world with the people that he saved. We'd have to. If that's what we plan on boasting in when Jesus comes, when he returns, we say, what I'm going to stand on is I'm going to stand on your work and disciples in the world, then I think day to day, our lives would look like that. We're prepared for Jesus to come and to proclaim what he's doing in the church. I think we can boil that all the way down to our relationships with one another, relationships with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with your friends. I think it works all the way down at that level where we are glorying and boasting and finding joy in other believers following Jesus, other believers acting like believers of Jesus. I want to remind us this morning that we don't boast in the church because we all like the same things. We don't boast in the church because we all like the Ravens or the Orioles, even though that is the right answer. <laughs> We don't boast in the church because we all dress the same way, even because we all like the same music on Sunday morning. We don't boast in the church because we raise our children identically or because we vote the same at the polls. We don't boast in the church because the church itself is so great. We boast in the church because of why? Because of Jesus. Because the Savior is so great. He is the one that unifies us. Even when we look and act and think differently from one another, 
the thing that brings us unity is the fact that we are saved by Jesus. And our unity is supposed to display to the rest of the world that we are different. We are believers that boast in what Jesus is doing. We are believers that find joy not in elevating ourselves, not in showing how much we can look identical to the people standing next to us, but we find joy and glory and boasting in looking like Jesus and in proclaiming that to the people around us. So I think that's what it would look like if we really believed more fully disciples are our crown of boasting, our glory, and our joy. I think it comes out in love for one another. That's what Jesus did, right? It's very easy for us to even picture that. When he was on the earth, when he walked around, he gave us a model of what to look like, and it looked a lot like loving other people, even people that are hard to love. And I think Paul believed this as well. He's writing to the Thessalonians because he loves them. He cares for them. In fact, as we're getting ready to get into in this passage, he's concerned for them. He's, he's worried. He's even fearful the way he said it. He's worried that they are going to neglect their faith in Jesus. He cares for them that much. These people that we talked about a couple weeks ago, they were just like strangers almost, right? They, he only knew them for a couple weeks. And certainly Paul had seen hundreds, maybe thousands of people come to Christ on his journey, and yet he's still specifically targeting the Thessalonian church here and writing to them with such tenderness and, and such care and such affection because he loves them. He cares for them. He desired more than anything for them to follow Jesus. So, that's our build-up to chapter 3. With that motivation in mind, with that love coming from the apostle toward the church in mind, his care, his concern for them, about them not neglecting Jesus, what was he the most worried about? It was in the passage we read this morning. What Paul was worried about, more than anything, was that the Thessalonian church would waver from their faith would be moved, is the word that he says. That they would be moved away from following Jesus because of what? What was the word that he said? Because of affliction. Because of affliction. That's what he was worried about. In verse 1, we see that. He says, therefore, because he loves them, because he cares for them, that's what the therefore is there for, because he loves them, when he could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. If you underline things in your Bible, I would recommend underlining or highlighting that because I think that's the main point of this passage. Paul is concerned that the Thessalonian church would be moved by affliction, that their faith would be moved off of Jesus, diminished, redirected because of the afflictions that they're dealing with. Sometimes when I'm reading one of Paul's letters, it's helpful for me to like try to break out the parenthetical parts because he just kind of comma and comma and comma and comma, and sometimes it's kind of hard to track it in. And so I did that with verse, verse 1, and you can look at it yourself, so you know, uh, see if I'm being legit here. But I broke it down like this. I skipped a couple of spots that were parentheticals and said in verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we sent Timothy that no one be moved by these afflictions. I think that's Paul's point. That's why he sent Timothy. He was willing to be left alone because he was so concerned with the Thessalonian church and they were being moved by affliction. So, affliction. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Affliction. It's not necessarily the first thing that you put on a track when you're trying to present the gospel to someone as we talk about affliction, how hard life can be, how hard being a Christian can be. But that's what we're going to talk about this morning. 
That's what Paul's concern for the, first, for the Thessalonian church is. And so let me just define what I mean by affliction, and I think this is uh, in line with the way that Paul uses it. So affliction can basically just mean suffering, hardship, having you know, difficulty. Um, and it's used in the New Testament to mean affliction for any reason. It says visit orphans and widows in their affliction, just from going through hard times. But the way Paul uses it in the Thessalonian letters, both of them, is it's really suffering because you're following Jesus. It's suffering at the hands of others because you follow Jesus. Suffering, uh, or affliction in this case, is suffering because of our faith in Jesus. And the types of words that he used in, uh, in this letter is things like being killed, driven out, shamefully treated, hindered from speaking, enduring much conflict, distress, suffering. That's what Paul means by affliction. And the church is still afflicted and persecuted even today. The Thessalonian church is enduring being killed, thrown in prison, losing their jobs, um, basically constantly suffering because of following Jesus. And we've seen that this is a pattern not just in the Thessalonian church, but in churches since Jesus walked the planet. Basically, it's been one of the common themes of the church is that suffering for following Jesus is normally how it goes. Early Christians were beaten, thrown into prison, disowned by their families. They've been persecuted. Persecution has been a staple for Jesus' followers from the beginning. And it's still very real in parts of the world today as well. I have a, uh, a printout. This is World Watch List 2023. There's other organizations that, that do something like this, but they basically just try to tally what is the persecution like in the world. What countries are the, the most persecuted? Are Christians the most persecuted for their faith in that? And it's a list of the top 50 countries. It's it's interesting, uh, maybe something worth reading and praying over. But just at a quick glance, um, according to this survey, in the past year, 5,600 Christians were murdered because they followed Jesus. So on average, that's 15 Christians every day. It's one every hour and a half. is murdered because they follow Jesus. Not as just a freak accident, not in a car crash is actively murdered, persecuted, because they follow Jesus. That's today, right now, 2023. I guess in 2022, I guess was that. 4,500 Christians were arrested. We don't really have that experience here today in the United States, but it is going on in the world around us. And I want to just pause for a moment here, because for me, just be honest, even as I was preparing this, it can be a difficult topic for me to talk about, consider, think about affliction and persecution in this way, because I'm not persecuted that way, and my parents aren't persecuted that way, and my brothers and sisters, and my friends, and so it feels sort of removed. It feels kind of distant. It feels like something that I can't really speak to or about, almost like I'm a poser if I talk about affliction. And I want to remind us this morning, which is where we just were at the end of chapter 2, when the church of Jesus is afflicted, is persecuted for their faith, that's us. We're part of that family. We're part of that body. And so I think we need to resist the temptation to be sort of like at arm's distance or to feel like we're not involved or it's apart from us in some way. It's not in our face, but it is what's going on right now in the world. And there are believers in Jesus, our brothers and our sisters, that are following Jesus, that are being murdered, imprisoned, 
losing their jobs and their livelihood because they follow Jesus. And so I want to encourage you this morning, maybe think of some ways that you can boast in those believers. What are some ways that we can glory in the believers in North Korea that are being murdered, imprisoned, disappearing because of their faith in Jesus? Encourage us to resist the temptation to stay standoffish from the affliction of our brothers and sisters in other countries. And the second kind of pastor moment, even to myself, is a reminder that there's no guilt or condemnation for us because you were born in the United States of America. I think it's easy, at least for me, and I'm going to be careful, don't project that on you, but I know for me it's just like I kind of feel like I should be guilty because I don't endure that type of persecution. I don't have that type of affliction on me. And I think what God's word says to that, what Jesus says to that, is that he's still sovereign. And that he chose for me to be born in Carroll County in the year 1988, where there isn't that type of affliction and murder going on. Just like he could have chosen me to be born in North Korea or in Iran. Jesus is sovereign over that. And so I don't have to carry some kind of guilt along with me. There's no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ. And I don't understand it. I don't deserve it. None of us deserve what we are given, any good thing. But we can rest solidly in the fact that Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is in control. and He is very good. And there's nothing that is wasted. There is no wicked thing. There's no evil thing that he doesn't ultimately turn around for his glory. And so I encourage you, if you feel the way that I do in that scenario, then preach truth to yourself. Preach to yourself that Jesus has put you in America in this day, in this age, in this time, in this moment, just like he has placed other believers in China and Iran and North Korea and Syria. Because we have a purpose. We have a job. We have a mission. We are the body. We're here for a reason. And so we can embrace that. And I, don't, and I think that kind of helps us from wanting to shy away from or pretend that there isn't affliction or persecution happening globally. And so before going any further, I just want to pray to that end. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for our brothers and sisters that are being persecuted in that way. Father, we come to you as your children and as your church. We come to you with very limited and very small understanding. Lord, we don't understand in some ways the good that you're doing but we don't need to. And so, Lord, I ask you that you would give us faith to follow you faithfully, even amidst affliction and suffering. And, Lord, all the more we pray for our brothers and sisters that even right now, maybe this very moment, are enduring hardships that are hard for us to imagine. Lord, I ask that you would move in our hearts, that you would protect us from, from feeling like we can stand on our, our rights or on the blessings that have only come from you, God. I pray that we would quick, be quick to give you the glory and give you the honor for anything good that we enjoy, but also quick then to have our hearts go out to our brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that you would give them faith. I pray that you would give them endurance. I pray that you would give them long-suffering, and I pray that you would give them relief. Lord, I pray that you would use your church, Jesus, all the different parts of the body 
that are to spread across this entire globe, that you would use us together, the strength that every joint provides, Lord, I pray that we would give you glory and give you honor in the way that we serve, in the way that we love, in the way that we care for one another, that we would honor you in that, Jesus. Help us now, I pray, as we dig into affliction and what that means in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would feel it something that does matter to us. I pray that you would make us feel the urgency that Paul felt as he wrote to the Thessalonians. And Jesus, I pray that you would do a work in our heart. I pray that this word would work in us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so now we understand what Paul's talking about affliction. What I want to do is bring it a little bit closer to home for us. What it does mean for us today. If Paul's writing this letter to the Thessalonians and it's been preserved by God and through the Holy Spirit and it's alive and active, what is it saying to us today as we're sitting here in this room, in the air conditioning, in a free country? What is God saying to us this morning? And I think I can say with confidence that despite living in a period of relative comfort, if we're willing to define affliction as suffering or experiencing loss for Jesus' sake, and I think I can say that we too are afflicted. Defining affliction as suffering or experiencing loss for Jesus' sake. So being a follower of Jesus means that we love him and, en- and others enough that we're willing to lay down our lives. We're willing to lay down our comfort, our finances, our time, our abilities, our dreams. We're willing to lay that down for Jesus. That's what being a Jesus follower means. Laying down our lives to follow him. couple examples that I thought of just to kind of get our brains thinking. I encourage you, maybe jot some down that are maybe specific or appropriate to you. Ways that we can be afflicted is maybe you have tight finances because you're generous with your money. So yes, we make more money in this country than many other places, but maybe you have less money because you willingly give it away. And maybe at times that's a trial. Maybe it's a struggle. Maybe you have unrealized career or life dreams that won't happen because instead you've sacrificed your time or your resources for other people. Maybe you have given up something tangible, a promotion in your career, an opportunity to go and travel or do something great from the world's perspective, but you've laid that aside because God's called you to do something else with your time. That's experiencing loss for the sake of Jesus. Maybe you felt hurt, relational hurt, like being left out, not being included, because you're thought of as being a Jesus follower. Either right or wrong, people just expect that you wouldn't fit in, or you wouldn't be a part, or you wouldn't enjoy, or you don't belong, and so you just were left off of that text thread, or email, or work conversation, for the sake of Jesus. Maybe you've purposely needed to skip a promotion Because you know that if you took that promotion, you would need to voice support for something that God says is wrong. Maybe it's enduring a spouse that doesn't believe in Jesus, that doesn't follow him, and instead mocks you because you follow Jesus. That time and time and time again reminds you and tells you how you're being stupid short-sighted, how they don't believe in that crap. Maybe it's enduring affliction from a spouse, a close family member like that. 
Maybe it's your children that you spend time with and raised and were so close, shared meals with, taught how to walk and how to speak. Maybe even encouraged them about Jesus and read the Bible to them, but now they want nothing to do with you because you follow Jesus. Because you believe Jesus is who he says he is, even your own children want nothing to do with you anymore and say, we're, we're no longer your children. We're no longer in relationship. We don't want to talk with you. That can be the cost of following Jesus, even in the United States. Emotional, relational hurt by being slandered, called names, things like hater, intolerant, narrow-minded, ignorant, for the sake of following Jesus. And I don't want to ignore physical danger either, because I believe that exists as well, physical danger by going to less desired places in society, going where it's more dangerous, because we love Jesus and we love people, willing to go out of Mount Airy into places like Baltimore City, because we love Jesus. That's putting yourself in physical harm, something that doesn't really make sense. You're not getting physical benefit from it. You're not you know, providing a longer life for yourself by going into the center of Baltimore City to preach the gospel. You're endangering yourself. That can be suffering for Jesus' sake. And maybe even going to a country where there is persecution to make disciples. That is still an option for us as well. And it's one of the things that God can do as we're praying over a list like the, the countries I just spoke of. And I, I think many of us have friends and know of friends that have knowingly put themselves in harm's way to go bring God's word to someone who doesn't have it or to preach the gospel to someone or to offer aid to someone who is in a country where being in prison, being murdered for your faith is very real. And so before we go any further, just based on a couple of lists that I gave, can you think of ways that you currently are afflicted right now? Has anything come to mind in that type of category? Or can you think of ways that you may one day be afflicted in the way that you're in your life, in your career, in your families, where you live, where you may live? Let's just try to put some meat on these bones a little bit. I just want, like, instead of just grabbing that, like, affliction word and have it hang out there, let's try to grab a couple examples that you can kind of hang on into your head. So as we're working through our, how do we live, how do we keep our faith while we're enduring affliction, let's try to be thinking about, well, what does affliction mean for me? What could affliction be? What might it look like? I think the main point of the passage this morning is to encourage us to have faith that is unmoved by affliction. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you four ways to have faith that is unmoved by affliction. All right, so if you want to take notes or write that down. To have faith that is unmoved by affliction, number one, expect affliction. To have faith that is unmoved by affliction, first, expect affliction. I get this straight from the text. Look with me in verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3 to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Next sentence. For you yourselves know that we are... What's that word? For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And the this, he means, is affliction. So for you yourselves know that we are destined for affliction. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Just has come to pass, and just as you know. Paul says it plainly. You are destined for affliction. Flip back with me to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 6. When you're there, say there. 
Chapter 1, verse 6, and you became imitators of us, that's the apostles, Paul talking, and of the Lord, that's Jesus, for you received the word in much, what? Affliction. There's the affliction word again. So Jesus was afflicted, the apostles were afflicted, and they said to the Thessalonians, you will be afflicted. Two other verses for us, just in case we don't really get the point. 2 Timothy 3.12 says it this way, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not going to move a lot of material that way, are you? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in John 15, Jesus says this. It's a little bit longer, but hang with me. This is Jesus talking. Jesus talking to his disciples in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you, and it's as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Church, affliction comes naturally in a life that follows Jesus. Because the world hates Jesus. The world hates Jesus. The world we live in hates your Savior. They murdered him. Jesus came, lived a perfect life. Let that just sink in. He did not wrong a single person on this earth. Lived perfectly with love for people around him. And he was beaten, mocked, and murdered. And what Jesus is saying in that verse in John is if that's how they treat Jesus, the perfect Son of God, our Lord and Savior, our example, then what treatment should we expect? I think it's good for us to remember that when we are following Jesus, we are walking contrary to the world. We are living in a way that is not the way that the world desires to live. Maybe some redeeming qualities, they would say like, oh, it's good, Christians, you shouldn't lie, and you don't lie, that's good, good thing. But our paths diverge very quickly because we live for a risen Savior, Jesus. Everything that we do is for his honor and for his glory. And what the Bible says that people, by default, us before we were saved, what we live for is ourselves. We want to worship ourselves. We want other people to worship us. And so when Jesus' church comes and says, we don't live for ourselves, we don't live for you, we live for Jesus, we are right in conflict with the world the entire system. And so we should expect the world to hate us. We should expect suffering. We should expect affliction because we follow Jesus. Now, an important note. Our affliction is not sought after or self-induced. Making incendiary comments on social media or picking fights in the name of Jesus, that is not the same thing as persecution. Christians are not afflicted because they are abrasive or be because they pick fights with others. We are afflicted because they believe the word of God like we just talked about. They are afflicted because they follow Jesus as the risen Lord. We should expect affliction, not go and try to find affliction. 
And so by expecting to suffer for the sake of the gospel in little ways, I think we can be preparing ourselves for suffering for the sake of the gospel in larger ways. If we're expecting, if our expectation, we say, I know coming in my life is going to be hardships, difficulty, suffering, pain, then as we walk through the little things, like saying you're sorry when you don't want to admit that you're wrong to someone else, like laying down your pride when you had an argument with a coworker at work, when it means like giving some of your money away to someone else in need, even though it hurts you to do that, when we die to ourselves in little ways like that, we are showing and we're building our faith. We're showing that we value Jesus more than we value other things. We are showing that he is the better thing. And so we should expect suffering. We should practice walking through affliction, not for the sake of affliction, but because we see Jesus as greater. So in every little area of life where we have an opportunity to show Jesus as greater than this other thing that I want, then we can willingly lay ourselves down with joy, even in affliction. So for point one, I just ask you this. Do you expect to be afflicted for Jesus? Do you expect it? Are you teaching your kids that? Are we proclaiming to others, new believers, that we should expect affliction? There's not a lot of that in storybook Bibles, I've noticed but it's true. It's the word of God. That's what Paul was concerned for the Thessalonians. They would fall away because of affliction. And so number one, he tells them is expect affliction. Yes, it hurts. Yes, we want it to end. Yes, we want no more affliction in our lives whenever possible. But no, when it comes, our faith will not be shaken. Number two, to have faith that is unmoved by affliction, resist Satan's temptation. Resist Satan's temptation. Look at verse 18 in chapter two with me. Chapter 2, verse 18. This is Paul talking again. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. We have an enemy, church. Paul acknowledged it. I'm not sure how he knew. To be honest, Matt and I were talking about this. I don't know how Paul knew that Satan was the one that hindered him from coming to the Thessalonians versus something else. (laughs) But we have an enemy, We have an enemy of your souls that is actively trying to keep you from doing what is honoring to God. He wants to shake your faith. And we see this directly in verse 5 of chapter 3. Look at that. Verse 5, chapter 3. Paul's reiterating why he was worried about the Thessalonians. He says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So, Paul is describing for us that we have an enemy who tempts us in times of affliction. And Paul was concerned because sometimes the enemy is successful. It is possible for you to fall away in times of affliction because of the tempter. We should feel the weight of that. We shouldn't be scared, shouldn't be worried because we're held in God's hands if we are his, but there still is the very real reality as we're seeing here in God's word that we could fall away. Our faith could be moved in times of affliction because of the lies of Satan. Satan will try to deceive you. His main tool is lying. He is a liar from the beginning and he will tempt you to move, forsake, focus your faith on someone other than Jesus. He'll say things like, if Jesus really loved you, he wouldn't make you suffer. 
Or he might say, you're just not worth anything. Jesus is punishing you right now for all the bad things you've done. Or he might say, no one else knows what this is like. You're the only one that has to endure this. Or maybe he'll whisper, if Jesus was strong, he would protect you. But he's not strong enough. So church, how do we resist temptation? What do we do when lies like that hit us, either from others or from our, inside our own minds even? What do we do when we have lies that come in and invade like that? Well, we do what we read in verse 13. We go to God's word, which is truth. We let it work in our hearts. We believe it as the truth. And that's what contradicts the lies of Satan. The Spirit uses God's word to minister inside of us, to tell us and remind us and preach to us truth when we're tempted by Satan to believe something that isn't true, when we're tempted to have our faith moved. So I'll ask you, where do you turn when you are being tempted? Do you rely on your own reasoning, your feelings, your logic to try to work it out? Or do you run to God's word? Do you run to God's word when you're being tempted, when you're afflicted, when you're discouraged, when you're confused, when you're worried? Do you spend time in God's word? Do you have it inside of you so that it can contradict the lies of Satan? To have faith that is unmoved by affliction, we must resist Satan's temptation. Number three, to have faith that is unmoved by affliction, live in community. Live in community. Chapter 3, verse 2, as we read a couple times now, Paul sent Timothy to the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. Why did he send Timothy? He didn't just pray for them. He didn't just write them a letter. What Paul wanted to do was to visit them in person, and when he couldn't do that, he sent Timothy to the church. And he sent Timothy to the church to establish and exhort them. And I hope by now, this is something that you've heard multiple times if you've been here before, but part of God's plan for Christ's church is for us to exist in community together. You were created and designed to exist with other believers in Jesus, unified together, providing for one another, helping one another, speaking truth from God's word to one another. That's one of the ways that we resist Satan. It's also one of the ways that we can be encouraged and built up, exhorted. So when you're afflicted, are you sharing that with someone else? Does anyone else know if you're suffering for Jesus? Are you willing to make yourself known enough for someone else to speak truth to you? One of God's greatest graces in our lives is other believers that he uses through his Holy Spirit to build us up. And that helps keep us from moving. We see that time and time and time again in God's word. You were not meant to strive all alone. You were not meant to be afflicted all alone. Church, we need to hear that. You're not meant to be afflicted alone. So who is bringing you care in your affliction? In the affliction little bubble that you had in your head that you grabbed a hold of, who's bringing you care in that? Who's bringing truth to you in that? And if you're not actively struggling with affliction, and maybe even if you still are, then we're also called to go to others. We're called to care for one another. We're called to actively go. And as we were talking about earlier about where we are in our country right now, we're in a very sort of special point in time. Probably one that's not going to last forever. 
And I wonder if one of the reasons that God has placed the church in the United States in this time is so that we can go, we can help, we can bring care, we can bring truth to others that are suffering, to others that are afflicted. Just as we need care in our affliction, part of our commission is to go and bring Jesus' truth to others, to care for others, to remind others, to exhort others, just like Timothy did for the Thessalonian church. There's another benefit that also comes by us striving with one another. We see this a little bit further in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Let me just read this to you. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, so this is actually after Timothy came back and talked to Paul after he visited the Thessalonian church. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all our distresses and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. The apostle Paul, in his affliction and in his suffering, was comforted by the faith of the Thessalonian church. So by us sharing together in our afflictions, by us doing one anothering during afflictions, not only are we helped and not only are we able to help the faith of others, we are encouraged and we're able to encourage others. By you talking about your affliction that you're struggling with and how you're striving to follow Jesus, did you think that you would bring encouragement to other believers to hear about that? I love this next passage. It brings it together from what we uh, heard a couple weeks ago. 2 Thessalonians 1.4. Go ahead and turn over to that real quick. 2 Thessalonians 1.4. If you have your scripture journals, it's in there also. Paul talks about boasting again. He talks about boasting in the Thessalonians. This is 2 Thessalonians. This is a little bit later. This is after he heard about their affliction. He says this, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul boasted in the Thessalonian church to other churches about how their faith was enduring in persecution. Boasting in persecution. And church, I think that's something that we can do too. We can boast to one another about the church that is in China about the church that's in North Korea, about believers that are enduring hardships from their bosses or coworkers or spouses, spouse or children. We can be encouraged in that. We can boast and proclaim and say, Jesus is doing a mighty work in this person's life. Look how he's transformed them. Look how he is bringing somehow the gospel to China where it's locked down and pastors are being imprisoned. Give God the glory for that. Boast in that. Proclaim it. Say it. Think about it revel in what Jesus is doing and what he's done. That's what Paul was doing. That's what he did. All right, lastly, number four, to have faith that is unmoved by affliction, hope in Jesus. Hope in Jesus. I know that might seem like a self-eating watermelon because in order to have faith in Jesus, we have faith in Jesus. But really, it's the culmination of everything that we've spoken about. Our hope is tied in Jesus, church. Our hope is founded on the rock, like Matt talked about earlier today. Our hope is not founded in how our health endures, what our finances have, and how successful our children are, how polite our children are, how good other people think of us, 
how successful, how long we live, if our hope is in any of those things, then when affliction comes and those things are taken away or compromised, then our hope itself is shaken. Our foundation is shaken. We have nothing to hold on to. If my hope is in my health and I get cancer, then what am I hoping in anymore? But if my hope is in Jesus, if my hope is that Jesus is going to return and right every wrong, and that everything that I'm enduring right now in this life is worth it, then, then what affliction can hurt me? What can it do to me? How can I be moved? If my hope is in Jesus, then no one can take Jesus away. He's already won. He's already conquered. To have faith that is unmoved by affliction, church, let's hope in Jesus. And if this morning, if you're here and you don't have hope in Jesus, if you can't resonate with what I just shared about founded on the rock of Jesus and not being moved by affliction, then here, Jesus lived and died to save sinners, to give us stability amongst affliction, to give us hope as everlasting. Jesus died for sinners. He took the punishment that we deserved, the wrath of God that we deserved. All the culmination of all the affliction of the universe came on Jesus so that we could have hope eternally in him, so we could be saved, so we could be clothed in his righteousness, so that we, although on this planet for maybe a couple more years lapping around the sun, maybe are enduring some hardships and some pain and some suffering, ultimately we're going to live eternity in glory with him. And that's offered to you this morning also. All it takes is belief. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Put your trust in him, and he promises that he will save you from your sins. In closing, flip back over to 1 Thessalonians 1. 1 Thessalonians 1. Because this is what my prayer is for us, church. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, that is my prayer for you. That is my prayer for us, that we would be seen as having steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, is your hope in Jesus? Is your hope steadfast in Jesus? Is Jesus worth following to you even through affliction? If everything else gets taken away, if everything else you need to suffer for the sake of Jesus, is he worth it? Is he worth it? Encourage us. Let's hope in Jesus. Sometimes when I'm writing a message, one of the things I'll start with or work through after studying the passage is, if I want the church to take away one thing, what do I want them to believe? And that kind of helps me as I'm preparing and praying and looking over it. What's one thing that I really want the church to believe? And so I'll just share with you this morning what I did write for this particular passage. More than anything, what I want the church to believe after this sermon, I want the church to expect, prepare, and faithfully endure in affliction for Jesus' sake. I want them to count the cost of following Jesus and believe that he is so worth it and I want them to spur each other on to faith in Jesus through affliction. Church, that's what I want for you. That's what I want for us. To have faith that is unmoved by affliction 
expect affliction, resist Satan's temptation, live in community, and hope in Jesus. Amen? All right, let's take just a couple minutes. Caitlin, go on ahead, come up. We'll probably do maybe only two songs this morning. But I still want to take just a couple minutes before we, before we sing. And I just have a few questions for us. The first one is, how are you afflicted for Jesus? How are you presently afflicted for Jesus? We've been told, we've been promised that we will be afflicted for Jesus' sake. So how are you afflicted? And it might be small, it might feel very large, that's okay, but try to make it personal. How are you afflicted, and then how can you have faith that is not moved in that affliction? And then second, how are people you know afflicted for Jesus? Maybe people you know directly, personally, maybe you can put a name to it, maybe it's people that are more distant, but how are people that you know afflicted? Who's God bring to mind? And then how can you help them have faith that is not moved? Honestly, I was really surprised in studying this of how much one anothering was a part of affliction. I really expected it to be more like believe God's word, stand fast, keep praying, and endure affliction. And I feel like, no surprise, God reminds us that we're supposed to do this together. So as we consider affliction that we're suffering and how we can remain steadfast, I think it's good for us. Well, how are others suffering? How are others afflicted? And how can we offer care and hope and encouragement to them. So let's just take a couple minutes.